I'm sure I'm not telling you anything new when I say that we are living in a day when there is very little respect for authority. In some ways, this is understandable because it seems as if so many authority figures in our day do things that are the exact opposite of respectable. What I mean is, we regularly hear stories about teachers and coaches and government leaders and military leaders and religious leaders and law enforcement officials who violate the public trust by getting involved in adultery or drunkenness or embezzlement or some other kind of improper activity. When that kind of thing comes to light, when that kind of thing comes out in the open, it creates a suspicion within society and makes people wonder if any authority figure can be trusted and if any authority figure is worthy of respect. It is very, very damaging. However, that's not the only reason why people in our society don't respect authority figures. Another reason why is because our society is becoming more and more self-willed and cocky and belligerent. Respect for authority is almost a thing of the past. This same kind of attitude has bled over into the religious world. Turn on the television and listen to some of the most popular preachers of our day, and you won't have to listen very long before you hear one of these preachers tell about rebuking Satan and binding demons and mocking Satan and making fun of demons. It's a common theme among popular preachers today. It might surprise you to hear that the Word of God described that kind of scenario almost 2,000 years ago and speaks against it. The passage to which I'm referring is 2 Peter chapter 2. So if you aren't already there, please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2 as we continue our trek through this, what is unfortunately a dark corner of the New Testament, 2 Peter along with Jude, 2 Peter 2 especially along with Jude. Those passages have been called the dark corner of the New Testament because of the issues that the writers must address. Please follow along as I read verses 4 through 11, although our focus is going to be on verses 10 and 11, since those are the ones we have yet to consider in any detail. But the sentence begins back in verse 4, where Peter says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and if God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds." Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. 
If you have been with us for the last few weeks, then you know that Peter's focus in this second chapter of his letter is on religious false teachers and the certainty of their judgment. He has given three examples of judgment from the past as evidence that God doesn't let things slide. Sooner or later, God brings about judgment on those who deny Him or disobey Him or refuse Him or misrepresent Him. The three examples of judgment that Peter has mentioned are, number one, the angels who sinned in Genesis 6, number two, the worldwide flood of Noah's day, and then number three, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter has used these three examples of judgment as evidence that God eventually judges the ungodly, the rebellious, the wicked. Now that is true for all people, but Peter has in mind a specific group as he writes these words, and that group is religious false teachers. Those who are under the umbrella of Christianity, under the umbrella of Christendom, but who do not submit to the authority of the Word of God and instead make up their own truth, their own God, their own Jesus. That is the group that Peter has in mind. That is why he begins verse 10 with the words, and especially, and especially. It's, ba- it's as if he is saying this, judgment will come upon all those who are ungodly. Judgment will come upon all those who are wicked, but especially upon false teachers who lead others astray by their words and by their actions. That is the focus of our text this morning consisting of verses 10 and 11. Before we look at these verses in detail, I want to show you a parallel passage in the tiny letter of Jude that is over a few letters to the right. So turn over there with me, please, to the book of Jude, find Revelation, the last book in the Bible, and go back one small letter to the book of Jude. The subject of the book of Jude, like 2 Peter chapter 2, is apostasy and false teachers. An apostate is someone who has been exposed to the truth, seems to believe the truth for a while, maybe even for years, but in reality has never embraced the truth internally. An apostate chooses to reject the truth and walk away. The classic example of an apostate is Judas Iscariot. He was a tear among the wheat. He was a false disciple. He looked real. He looked genuine. He walked with Jesus and the other disciples for years, but he never embraced the truth in his heart. So an apostate is someone who has eventually denied the true God and the true Jesus, as Jude says at the end of verse 4 of his letter. Notice that last phrase in verse 4. He says, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, an apostate will create his own God and his own Jesus in his mind. He creates a God or a Jesus who is more lenient or more liberal or more comfortable to talk about, but it's not the God of the Bible. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. Remember now, we're talking about people in religious settings here. We're not talking about atheist, irreligious people. That is not the focus of 2 Peter 2 and Jude. He's talking about religious people. And Jude is describing here in his letter those who create a God or a Jesus in their mind. And beloved, that is nothing less than idolatry. 
Idolatry is worshiping a false god, whether it's one you create with your hands out of wood, one you create with your hands out of stone, or one you create in your mind. It's still a false god. It's still a different Jesus. It's still another gospel. And Galatians 1.8 says, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And that is exactly what Jude says in this letter. False teachers who claim to represent God, who claim to represent Jesus, but who do not submit to the authority of Scripture are marked out for condemnation. In fact, the end of verse 7 says, Apostates and false teachers will suffer the vengeance of eternal fire. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said hell was created for the devil and his angels. Very important statement. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. But apostates and false teachers choose to go there by rejecting the truth. They choose the judgment of God by rejecting the truth. So in verses 5 through 7, Jude gives three examples of judgment in history. Just as Peter gives three examples of judgment, Jude gives three examples of judgment. They're not identical, but they're similar. They're close. Verse 5, God judged the Israelites who didn't believe. Verse 6, God judged the angels who rebelled. Verse 7, God judged the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. That brings us to verse 8, where Jude begins a thorough, extensive description of of apostates and religious false teachers, and you can already begin to see how this parallels with 2 Peter chapter 2, where we have been studying for the last few weeks. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Sooner or later... An apostate will defile the flesh as Sodom and Gomorrah did. He will despise and reject authority like the angels did. And he will speak evil of God or dignitaries or celestial beings like the children of Israel did. Notice that Jude calls them filthy dreamers in this verse. The word dreamer means to see delusions. False teachers don't see the truth. They see delusions. They create their own concept of truth. They won't take what Scripture says. They'll take part of it, and then they're dreamers. They just come up with their own view of truth. They think what they see is the truth because they have created their own concept of truth in their minds. They come up with their own definition of truth. But it's really a falsehood that allows them to defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. It's a falsehood because they reject the source of truth when they reject the authority of the Word of God. They don't see the Bible as the inspired, inerrant, authoritative Word of God, or if they claim they believe it is, they don't submit to it. As verse 8 says, they reject authority. That is the heart of the issue, beloved. That is it right there. And we'll see this also when we turn back to 2 Peter 2. That is the heart of the issue. False teachers are not willing to submit themselves to the authority of the Word of God. Rather than allowing the Word of God to sit in judgment upon them, they sit in judgment on the Word of God. If you don't believe me, just, just uh, expose yourself to a lot of what is taught under the umbrella of Christianity today. 
you will hear pastors, reverends, teachers saying the Bible has historical errors. It has scientific errors. Some say it has contradictions. Some say it's just a collection of the writings of men. Some say it isn't binding on us today. It's outdated. Some say you can't take it literally. Some say you have to take it allegorically. Some say it's composed of myths and mythology, so you need to demythologize the Bible. Some say it's the Word of God, but they just don't submit to it. Instead, they use it and twist it for their own self-promotion and for their own profit. Regardless of which of these views they hold, they reject authority, Jude says. They reject the authority of what God has said in his word. And in doing so, they, whether they realize it or not, speak evil of God and Christ. They speak evil of God in the sense that God has given his word that they don't listen to. They speak evil of Christ in the sense that he himself quoted scripture as the authority always. The last word here in verse 8, you maybe noticed when I read it, the last word in verse 8 is the Greek word for glories or celestial beings. The phrase speak evil is the Greek word blasphemeo, and immediately you recognize it in English. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word blaspheme. The word means to slander, blaspheme, revile. So Jude is saying false teachers reject God's truth, they don't submit to its authority, and thus by their actions or, and or by their words, they blaspheme the glories of God in Christ. Or to say it another way, they slander or revile celestial beings. How do they do that? What does that mean? Hold that question. We're going to answer it as the message unfolds. By way of contrast to these false teachers, Jude says in verse 9, Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring a railing against him, a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. The point that Jude is making here is that Michael, the archangel, showed restraint even in his interactions with the devil, but false teachers exhibit no reverence for any authority. If Michael wouldn't even speak a word against Satan because of his position, then how foolish it is when false teachers speak against the glories of God in Christ or speak against celestial beings. How foolish when false teachers slander and revile celestial beings such as Satan and demons by thinking they can revile and mock and make fun of Satan and demons. Yet this goes on all the time, all the time, by some of the most popular preachers of our day, especially those in the Word of Faith movement. Let me pause here at this point for a brief application before we go on to develop this thought further. It is very disturbing, very disturbing, to see how flippant some people are about the devil. There are jokes about the devil. There are silly songs about the devil. And some people even interrupt their prayers to God in order to speak to the devil. Maybe you've heard them. Their prayers go something like this. Dear God, thank you for providing us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We claim that victory now. And Satan, we bind you. We command you to flee. We rebuke you. We send you to the pit. Go to hell where you belong. That, that kind of praying has become so commonplace in Christianity 
that we never stop to think about the absurdity of interrupting communion with the holy God of the universe to talk to the devil. That is bizarre. There is absolutely no biblical precedent for that kind of praying, which mixes talking with God and talking with the devil. And there is no biblical precedent for going after the devil with reviling accusations or railing judgments or slanderous accusations. The Bible consistently says the devil is after us and we are to resist him, but we don't go after him. We don't talk to him and rail at him and mock him and bind him, whatever that means. I remember hearing a sermon on one occasion that, in my opinion, made light of the devil by saying that we were supposed to hit him with the Word of God. The preacher kept saying about the devil in a mocking kind of way, hit him with the Word of God, kick him with the Word of God, punch him with the Word of God, slap him with the Word of God. Now, I agree that that, that the way we battle Satan is with the Word of God. That's the way Jesus battled Satan. But when we talk about spiritual warfare with the devil, that is nothing to trivialize. It's nothing to take lightly. Verse 9 says, Michael had such a high regard for the power of Satan, the position of Satan, that he dared not bring a railing accusation against him. And Jude's conclusion, his application is this. If Michael refused to do that with Satan, to Satan, then certainly we should refuse to do so. But today, it's the in thing to talk about the devil in a trivial manner. Beloved, don't do that. Don't make fun of the devil. He's nothing to make fun of or revile or mock. Verse 9 says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. The incident that verse 9 is referring to is one that is not completely spelled out in Hebrew Scripture. When Moses died, he was alone on a mountain overlooking the promised land. You remember the story. Because he did not honor the Lord by speaking to the rock, instead struck the rock, God says, okay, the consequence is, Moses, you won't lead the people into the promised land. I'll let you go up on the mountain and see it, but you won't go in. So he went up on a mountain somewhere on the eastern side of the Jordan River, saw the promised land, and he died. God himself buried the body of Moses. Evidently, Satan wanted Moses' body. Maybe so he could use it to cause the people to worship it and commit idolatry. Just think about what they did with the, with the, brazen, the bronze serpent, how they turned that into an idol. So can you imagine what they would have done with the body of Moses? But regardless of the reason, God wasn't going to let the devil have the body of Moses. So Michael was dispatched to intervene. And instead of arguing with Satan, instead of contending with Satan, bringing a reviling accusation against him, Michael simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael showed restraint with his words. That's Jude's point. Michael showed restraint with his words, but religious false teachers show no restraint. Now, if you ever take the time to just flip through some of the famous preachers of today, you know exactly what Jude is talking about here. They show no restraint. 
They speak evil of dignitaries, speak evil of celestial beings. They reject the authority of God's word, says Jude. Their biggest problem, their most fundamental problem, is their refusal to submit to authority. They believe they are the authority. That is especially the case with those who are very intelligent. A lot of times if they have doctor after their name, reverend after their name, they believe that their intelligence makes them the authority and that they can sit in judgment on the Word of God and go to it and tell you which parts you ought to believe, which parts you don't need to believe, which parts are scientifically unsophisticated, which parts are historically outdated. They believe their intelligence makes them the authority so they don't take seriously the necessity of submitting to God's Word. So what does Jude have to say here about the character of apostates and false teachers? I had us turn here because it's so parallel with our text in 2 Peter 2. Jude says this, Physically they are often immoral, intellectually they are arrogant, and spiritually they are blasphemous. And beloved, that is exactly, exactly what Peter says about them in 2 Peter chapter 2. Now let's go back to our text in 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter has been talking about the certainty of coming judgment, and now he zeroes in on or focuses in on false teachers. He says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, he says, And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries or glorious ones. Notice the words and especially here at the beginning of this verse. Judgment will come upon all those who are ungodly. Judgment will come upon all those who are wicked. But Peter says especially, especially upon false teachers who lead others astray by their words and by their actions. This reminds me of James 3.1 where we read, My brethren... Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Why does James open chapter 3 of his letter that way? Because teachers and preachers have unique opportunities to cause immense, immense damage or promote tremendous good with their words. Words are our tools. Our tongue is our primary instrument. Therefore, teachers and preachers will receive a stricter judgment. I'm convinced that there are many preachers who don't know that verse is in the Bible. They don't know it exists. Being a preacher or teacher of God's Word is a serious responsibility. It is not something to be taken lightly. False teachers who misrepresent God's Word and misuse God's Word will face a horrifying judgment. It's a serious responsibility to claim to represent God and His Word. In 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul illustrated this responsibility by comparing preachers and teachers to stewards who are called to be faithful. The job of preachers and teachers is to be faithful to dispense what God has said in His Word. It should never be distorted or twisted or colored, 
or softened or used for one's own purposes. And Scripture warns that the Lord Himself is the ultimate judge of any man's faithfulness to his stewardship of the Word. The Lord is not going to evaluate preachers and teachers on the size of their audience, but rather on their faithfulness to a correct handling of Scripture. I'll tell you something, beloved. It's going to be a different day in heaven. It is going to be a different day in heaven when preachers and teachers of Scripture stand before the Lord to give an account for their stewardship of Scripture. The size of the audience will be irrelevant at that point. Totally irrelevant. Popularity with people will be irrelevant at that point. According to 1 Corinthians 4, 5, 2 Timothy 2, 15, and James 3, 1, the issue at that point will be faithfulness to what God has said in His Word. Because preachers and teachers of God's Word have a great potential, there is a greater responsibility, there is a greater accountability, and James 3, 1 says a stricter judgment. There is a stricter judgment for those who speak in the name of the Lord or those who claim to speak in the name of the Lord. That's why Peter says at the beginning of this verse, and especially, especially. He says, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. As I've mentioned to you in the recent past, just in this series, if it weren't so inappropriate, I could tell you about some of the big names, the big names on Trinity Broadcasting Network, TBN, the big names and the blatant immorality. Beloved, don't doubt God when he says that false teachers walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. Don't doubt God. He's saying exactly what is the case. Always has been. They indulge the flesh That doesn't only refer to immorality, but it certainly includes immorality. In addition, it describes the indulgence of the flesh by way of excessive spending and an extravagant lifestyle. You see, one of the problems with false teachers today is that so many of them are known only by people who watch them on TV or listen to them from a distance. As a result, people don't see their lives. People don't see their lifestyles. People don't see the way they live or the way they act or how they spend their money or how they control the flesh or don't control the flesh. Therefore, they're able to get away with so much because it's hidden from the eyes of their supporters. Could I pause here for another application? Well, I'm going to whether you say okay or not. So here we go. Here it is. Beloved, be careful, be very careful to whom you send financial support. Be very careful. Be very discerning about sending money to some guy on TV or on the radio unless you know with certainty that he and the ministry he represents are characterized by integrity and biblical fidelity. That's not always easy to discover, but it's an important obligation we have in our financial stewardship as God's people. Now, I'm not suggesting that you all call me for a checklist 
because I don't know all the ministries that are out there, and I don't know all the leaders of all those ministries personally. But I do know that what God says here is true. I know it beyond any shadow of a doubt. There are leaders under the umbrella of Christianity who walk according to the flesh in uncleanness, as Peter says here. Not only that, his next descriptive phrase, they despise authority. I've already emphasized this point several times because I believe it's the foundational issue. It is the issue. Even false teachers who claim to be Bible teachers often don't submit themselves to its authority in their lives. They may quote it in their sermons. They may hold it up when they talk. But they aren't committed to rightly dividing the word of truth and living by it. That is why Peter says in the next phrase here in verse 9, they are presumptuous, self-willed. Some versions say daring and self-willed. Some say bold and willful or something along those lines. You know, sometimes when I listen to TV pre- some of the TV preachers and hear some of the things they say, I am shocked that they would have the audacity to make the claims they make. When they utter statements or comments that are clearly blasphemous and heretical, I cringe. Yet they are, they are able to say those things without blinking an eye. Why? Because of what Peter says here. Presumptuous, self-willed, daring, bold. They make claims about God speaking to them and telling them that they should say such and such or do such and such. And some of the things are so bizarre that anyone with any biblical discernment knows that it's totally made up and fictitious. But they don't have the hesitancy to make their claims. Because as God says here, they are defiant and determined in their ways. And then Peter adds a final descriptive phrase at the end of this ninth verse. He says they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Or, some translations, they are not afraid to speak evil of glorious ones. Some translations say they are not afraid to speak evil of angelic beings. The NIV says they are not afraid to speak evil of celestial beings. It's fairly obvious, even by our English translations, that this is a reference to spirit beings or angels. Because in the very next verse, Peter specifically mentions angels. So this could refer to holy angels, or it could refer to fallen angels. Which is it? In light of Jude's comments that we looked at just a moment ago, it seems that Peter is referring to fallen angels or demons. So you could read it that way. They are not afraid to speak evil of fallen angels. Peter is saying, just as Jude said, that false teachers are often not afraid to speak evil of Satan and demons. Now think about this with me. In what way, in what way could false teachers slander or revile, depending on your translation, speak evil of Satan and demons. Let me mention a few ways, some of which I've already mentioned, but just to pull them together. Some false teachers speak evil of demons by denying their existence. This is often the case with false teachers who are sort of in the intelligentsia, in that, in that uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, that class of Christendom. 
They just deny their existence. They say that Satan and demons aren't real beings. We know that's just what people believed, you know, in the old days, and that's, that's antiquated, that's old-fashioned. They don't really exist. They aren't persons. That's just, that's just a way to talk about evil in a symbolic manner. That's one way false teachers slander demons. They just say they don't exist. A second possible way is by making fun of them. Some preachers who believe in the reality of demons make fun of them by saying they are stupid and dumb and gullible because they followed Satan in his rebellion. Now it's true that the angels who followed Satan in his rebellion were foolish for doing so. But the fact is, demons are highly intelligent creatures because they were made that way by God. There is no place, there is no place for making fun of them and reviling them and slandering them by calling them something like stupid dummies or, or anything like that. A third possible way that some preachers revile demons is by making inappropriate comments about how to resist them. I've heard preachers say, and I'm sure many of you have, things like, kick the devil in the teeth, tell him where to go, Punch the devil in the mouth. Kick him in the rear end and make him get out of Dodge. And audiences who hear preachers talk that way often laugh hysterically. But that is an inappropriate way to talk about defeating the devil's attacks against us. Those are just some of the ways that false teachers might do what Peter is describing here when he says they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, celestial beings, spirit beings. Now let me offer a word of clarification, and please hear this. I am not suggesting that every preacher or any preacher who does these kinds of things is automatically a false teacher damned to hell under what Peter is writing here in 2 Peter 2. What I mean is, it is possible for Christians, genuine Christians, to speak in a wrong manner also. Maybe, you know, maybe we hear other Christians talk like that, and we just sort of get sucked into that, that mindset or that that habit or that pattern. So any, anybody can do the, violate what, what is being addressed here. A genuine Christian can. So it's not automatic that people who speak this way are false teachers. But what Peter is saying here, and what Jude says, is that these are the kinds of things that characterize false teachers. These are the kinds of activities that often characterize false teachers. And then he adds this thought in verse 11. He says, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them, that is against these celestial beings, these dignitaries, before the Lord. Now this is almost identical to what we saw in the book of Jude regarding Michael, the archangel, and the devil. Jude tells us Michael did not speak a reviling accusation against the devil. That's what Jude says. Here, Peter says, angels. Now he broadens it. Angels do not bring a reviling accusation against Satan and demons. So Peter is saying the same thing Jude is, except that he just expands it. Jude gave a singular example. Michael, the archangel, and the devil. Here, Peter says, angels, holy angels, do not speak or bring a reviling accusation against Satan and demons. Not only that, notice what Peter says. Angels are greater in power and might than human teachers. But, think about this. 
False teachers will do what angels will not dare to do. And that is to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against demons. Some false teachers think they have so much authority that they can command Satan and demons to go to hell. That is blasphemous. No one, no one can send Satan and demons to hell except God. God and God alone. Christ, the Son of God. God in human flesh. Holy angels can't even send Satan and demons to hell. Holy angels don't even presume to try to do that. But false teachers think they have the the authority to do that. They think they have the power to do that. Surely you've heard this kind of thing, beloved, if you have listened to some of the famous Word of Faith preachers today. They presumptuously speak to Satan and demons and tell them to go to hell or to go to the pit. Who do they think they are? Really, who do they think they are? That reveals who they think they are. Do they think they have more power than God's holy angels? Do they think they have more authority than God's holy angels? Yes, they think they are the authority. Which brings us right back to where we started this message and what's at the core of this message. False teachers despise authority. The Bible's authority, angels' authority, because they want to be the authority. They think they are the authority. They think they have that much power. They pretend to have it. They convince their followers they have it. Thus they have many followers who really look up to them and are amazed. And when you say anything about them, boy, do you catch it from their followers. Because their followers have such a high regard for them. They are the authority. But Peter reminds us here that the day will come when they will face the severe, damning judgment of God. For the way they misrepresent God, the way they misrepresent Scripture, the way they they misrepresent truth, the way they misrepresent spiritual warfare, all of the above, one day they will face the severe, damning judgment of God and be exposed for who they really are. That's what 2 Peter 2 says. That's what Jude says. It's not a pleasant subject. It's not a comfortable subject. It's not a joy-filled subject. But it's obviously an important one. Because God says it in 2 Peter, and he says it in Jude, to make sure we don't miss it. False teachers will face the damning judgment of God someday. Let's bow together as we close. And let me remind you of this. False teachers aren't the only ones who will face the judgment of God someday. Especially they will, Peter says, especially. But so will everyone who has refused to surrender to the authority of Christ. He is the authority. His word is the authority. Thus, all those who refuse to bow the knee to Christ in this life will be forced to do so someday as they face the judgment of God. Is that you? Have you allowed the prevailing attitude of our day and age, the prevailing attitude of 
anti-authority to creep into your life so that you say, hey, I'm my own boss, my own man. No one tells me what to do. No one. God, Christ, the Bible, no one. If that's your attitude, I guarantee you, you will face the judgment of God someday. Submit to the authority of God, the authority of Christ and his word. Surrender to him. Bow the knee to him willingly, lest you be forced to do so someday in judgment. Father, this is uh, this entire chapter of 2 Peter 2, this entire chapter is an unpleasant one, but it's a very important one. And surely those of us who just are alert and aware of what's going on in the religious world today, in the Christian community today, under the umbrella of Christianity, Christendom, we see, we see the importance of what Peter writes here as well as Jude. We see the relevancy of these words. They've always been applicable. They've always been true and right. But it seems that at various times in human history they are even more, more relevant to speak to the issue of the day. And that is the case in this 21st century. False teachers abound. They are prosperous. They have huge followings. They deceive your people, Father. Confuse your people. It's all around us. And therefore, we would do well to take seriously what you say in your word. To realize that this isn't merely Peter writing these words or Jude. This is your Holy Spirit guiding, directing these words to be written as a warning to your people and to the people of this world. Father, in closing, I want to pray for anyone here in this room right now, anyone hearing these words, who for whatever reason has refused to submit to the authority of Scripture, who has refused to submit to the authority of Christ, who has refused to submit to your authority, and maybe even blatantly shakes a fist in your face. May your spirit get through to that person. Make him or her see the seriousness of that course that he or she is on. And may your spirit bring them to a tender submission, a willingness to surrender to Christ, to yield to him, whose authority is perfect, whose authority is not excessive, whose authority is not abusive, but it's a perfect authority. May every one of us in this room leave here today submitted to his authority as expressed in your precious word. This is our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen.